You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome again, friends, as we continue to pursue a Christian vision of a God who wants to save all of us and who is willing and able to do so. So far in our journey, we've identified a five-point biblical theology for Christian universalism. We've seen how we can find evidence for an understanding of judgment in which no one is cast off forever. We've examined more deeply our three possible approaches to grace, the transactional, the exclusive, and the inclusive approaches, and we've looked at their strengths and weaknesses. And now it's time to look into some of the perceived weaknesses of the inclusive Christian universalist approach. The first one of those perceived weaknesses has to do with hell. Critics of the inclusive approach believe it underestimates the threat of hell and that the Bible, especially in the New Testament, presents a picture of judgment which entails a complete and final separation from God for some. So, let's go to hell, which I believe might be my first attempt at humor in this podcast. A good passage for us to consider comes very early on in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 21-30. In this teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains how murder and adultery are committed verbally and mentally before they are committed physically. And so calling someone insulting names or imagining adultery both incur guilt. Let me read the whole passage, starting with verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Notice that Jesus warns here that calling someone a demeaning name puts the name-caller in danger of the fire of hell. 
and also how, according to Jesus, it's better to get rid of parts of the body that cause you to sin rather than having your whole body thrown into hell. Notice also Jesus' warning that it's better to make things right with your adversary before your adversary hauls you in front of a judge and you end up in prison until you have paid the last penny. So a general picture of judgment is starting to emerge here. It seems like a serious warning, especially concerning the part about getting rid of body parts that cause you to sin, which is a warning that somehow biblical literalists know not to take literally, but seriously. I think we can see here that the language Jesus uses when talking about judgment is shocking language or hyperbole, which is meant to grab your attention and not to get you to grab a knife. I think it's also worth noting that it seems like violating the human dignity of other persons is what brings on guilt. We can also notice that in the very same passage where hell is invoked, there is also invoked an image of a prison where you don't get out until you have paid the last penny. That tells me that the judgment scenario we are looking at is very, very serious, yet also not necessarily lasting forever because it only lasts until the last penny is paid. Now, who knows how long it takes to pay the last penny, depending on how serious the offense is, but nobody in their right mind would sin boldly because they think, well, I'll get out eventually. Having made those observations, let's turn and look into the history and background of the word commonly translated as hell in this passage. In the Greek text of the New Testament, the word translated here is Gehenna, which literally means Hinnom's Valley, or the valley belonging to the sons of Hinnom. Gehenna, or Hinnom's Valley, was a real place, a real valley just south of Jerusalem, which by the time of Jesus had come to have a terrible reputation. In that terrible valley of Hinnom, in the time before Jesus, Jewish people had actually sacrificed their own children in the worship of other gods. To keep the awful child sacrifices from ever occurring again, the Israelite king Josiah had the valley permanently desecrated by scattering ashes over it. Prophet Jeremiah warned that one day the bodies of dead Israelites would crowd this valley, having been cast there by their enemies, and then how at that time it would no longer be called the Valley of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So, when Jesus warned that dehumanizing others could finally land you in hell, or in Gehenna, or in Hinnom's valley, that was a vivid, real-world image of ruin and destruction and disgrace in the minds of his hearers. The transformation of Gehenna, or Hinnom's valley, into something like the hell of Dante's Inferno was a journey many centuries in the making. And so when English readers of the Bible read the word hell, they often read into that word a literary background that wasn't originally there. And so when we read the English word hell in this passage from Matthew chapter 5, it helps to know that in this instance, the word hell is translating the Greek word Gehenna, referring to Hinnom's valley, which meant something different in Jesus' day than what the word hell has come to mean in ours. For a book-length treatment of this topic, I can recommend The Geography of Hell and the Teaching of Jesus by Kim Pompeianu. In this scholarly work, the author makes a strong argument 
that there was no fixed meaning of Gehenna at the time of Jesus. He also argues persuasively that the connection between Gehenna and eternal torment is not evident until after the time of Jesus. I'll put this book in the show notes for this episode. I can also recommend the description of Gehenna that David Bentley Hart provides in the postscript to his translation of the New Testament. A very interesting aspect of all of this which Hart brings up in his comments on Gehenna is how Gehenna was understood by other Jewish teachers around the time of Jesus. I recommend you read all of Hart's comments on Gehenna in the postscript to his translation of the New Testament, and I'll put where you can find that in the show notes of this episode. But I want to share the following passage from that postscript with you so that you can get an idea of just how much nuance we are dealing with in trying to understand what Jesus might have meant when he spoke of Gehenna. And so here is Hart's description of what other teachers in Judaism were thinking about Gehenna around the time of Jesus. Before, during, and soon after the time of Jesus, it was common parlance among a great many sects and schools, and it was understood sometimes as a place of final destruction, sometimes simply as a place of punishment, and sometimes as a place of purgatorial regeneration. The two dominant rabbinical schools of Christ's time, that of Shammai and that of Hillel, both spoke of it as a place of purification or punishment for a limited period. But both also taught that for the incorrigibly wicked, there would or could be a state of eternal or final shame, remorse, suffering, or ruin. Shammai had a somewhat grimmer view of the number of the ultimately lost, about a third of humanity on some accounts, whereas Hillel had a far keener sense of the power of God's mercy to save. For Shammai, the Gehenna was principally a refiner's fire for those souls neither incorrigibly wicked nor blamelessly good, and those subjected to its pains would ultimately be raised up to paradise. Hillel apparently thought of the Gehenna as a place of final punishment and annihilation, body and soul, of the utterly depraved, but thought their number extremely small. And rabbinical tradition says that it is from Hillel that what became the standard rabbinic view, that no one can suffer in Gehenna for more than 12 months, originally comes. The idea at least goes back as far as Rabbi Akiva in the generation just after Christ. But really, we do not know whether Jesus advanced a similar view of Gehenna's fire or what duration he might have assigned to the sufferings of those who were committed to it or how metaphorically or literally he or his listeners might have understood its imagery. Clearly, though, the metaphor was his natural idiom, and so it seems unlikely that his language here should be assumed to be any more literal than his language of ovens or harvests or threshing floors or the closed doors of feasts. I think Hart does a good job here of capturing all of these various possibilities. And given all of this, I think it's reasonable for me to summarize all of this by saying that, for those of us who inherited the Christianity of Western civilization and Dante's Inferno, hell became a very well-defined, otherworldly torture pit which lasts forever and ever. However, at the time of Jesus, Gehenna was a very this-world valley of Hinnom, which had a variety of understandings but which, at the most basic level, brought to the Jewish imagination ideas of apostasy, ruin, and destruction. And for Jesus, it seemed to function as a general but very serious warning as to where we are headed 
when we dehumanize others. And so now I'd like to have you hear this passage as it sounds in David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, where he gives a more literal rending of the passage. His translation of this teaching from Jesus reads, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to judgment. Whereas I say to you that everyone who becomes angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment, and whoever says raka to his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says worthless reprobate shall be liable to enter Hinnom's veil of fire. Where most English Bibles use the word hell in that last sentence, did you hear how Hart translated the actual geographic place, which is in the text? And so in Hart's translation, those who dehumanize others place themselves in danger of finding themselves in Hinnom's veil of fire, which has a little different ring to it than our English word hell with all of its baggage. And as I've thought about all of this, I've also found it helpful to try to think about what was the big picture that Jesus had in mind when he was thinking about judgment. Because in order to understand the full context of Jesus' warnings, we need to understand that one of the main things on his mind at that time was to warn the people of his day about how to avoid a looming disaster coming within a generation of his time in which Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Jesus cautioned his followers not to follow the leadership of what he called the corrupt generation, which was leading Israel into a violent and disastrous conflict with Rome. He advised them instead to head for the hills when the Roman armies came, because the walled city of Jerusalem would ultimately become a death trap, which it did in A.D. 70. And so when I hear Jesus' threatening language about hell or the valley of Hinnom, I hear a man warning a whole nation. You are all on the road to destruction in Gehenna. All of your traditions have blinded you to what's really going on. Your pride and your customs are leading you towards disaster. Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed in a great fire, which won't be put out. And if you don't turn around and repent from your violent ways, you too will be destroyed in that fire as well. And as I mentioned earlier, what Jesus predicted about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple all came true in 70 A.D. All of this background on the Valley of Hinnom helps us to get more of a picture of what's going on behind the English word hell. Now, when we think about Gehenna, or Hinnom's Valley of Destruction, that might sound like an absolute dead end for some people. But even the concept of destruction has some nuances to it that we can consider. And so that's what we'll do in the next episode, look more deeply into the idea of destruction. In the meantime, I hope this has helped you to know about Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. I'll look forward to visiting with you in the next podcast. But until then, I encourage you to join me in believing in a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, Or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.